All right, you can turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 again. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. After after taking a short break for Father's Day, we're going to be getting back into our series through the Apostle Paul's second inspired letter to the church that was meeting in the city of Corinth. And um, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 12 in just a, uh, a moment. We've seen recently in this series that there's more to this life than what we can what we can see and observe with our natural eyes, with our natural senses. There's a warfare in which we are involved. And it's a spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And two weeks ago, we acknowledged that, and we saw how we are to fight in this warfare. We fight in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. We fight in the Spirit, not after the flesh. We fight in full subjection of the mind to Christ. We fight in readiness to reprise disobedience in our own lives. And that's how we fight. Today we're going to step back into that same chapter where we left off there and uh, and finish it out. And what we find here in these last seven verses is Paul's specific address of an issue in that region in the, uh, the first century of the church. And this particular issue is one that plagued the early church. Um, Eventually, it corrupted many churches. Let me explain. Those who were converted in those early years of Christianity were mostly former adherents of other religions. Right? They, um, They used to be something else before they were Christians, before they were followers of Christ. And primarily they came from Judaism. They developed, the, the, Judaism is the developed religion of the Old Testament time period. And as, as converted people transitioned from Judaism to Christianity, there was some amount of difficulty that they had because the structure of the church that Jesus founded was of a different design than that of Judaism with which they were familiar. And so it'll help us to understand the problem that was going on in the region around Corinth if we understand Judaism a little bit, at least the authority structure thereof, and the contrasting authority structure of the church per the design of Jesus Christ. And um, So let's look at Judaism first. The authority structure of Judaism was derived from uh, the temple system. And all the authority resided in the priesthood. And priests wielded an immense amount of power over the people, over the adherents of Judaism. 
they collected money, and no one else did. They were highly recognized. They were feared for the authority that they wielded. And they had the ultimate say in individual worship. That was the system of Judaism as it had developed from the Old Testament temple system. And the authority structure seemed to be very man-centered. I say seemed to be because we know God's original design was that he was to be the center, right? (laughs) But he did set up the priesthood. The Bible even specifically points out part of the weakness of the Old Testament system, a purposeful weakness built into it, was the imperfection of the men involved. And that was in part um, uh, magnified by the fact that they had authority. That... that, uh, That power structure in Judaism combined with the sacred location of the temple still held a heavy influence over converted Christians. It was uh, was all they knew in religion as far as a, 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 a structure for their religion. And so some tried to recreate that same type of authority structure And many were tempted to grasp for that same type of power that they had seen and understood from the temple system. However, the church that Jesus founded did not have the same type of authority structure. It was vastly different than the temple system of a a very limited chosen priesthood within the overall religion. The church was local in design. And each and every converted person was a priest himself, or a priest herself. You know what we call that doctrine? The priesthood of the believer, right? We are all priests. That's, that was God's new design. Quite antithetical to the, the Old Testament type of priesthood where a certain limited chosen priesthood wielded power over the rest. So the church was local in design, and and while there was a simple local authority structure of pastors and deacons that the Bible very clearly lays out, there was no central place of power that overshadowed all the gatherings. There was no temple in Jerusalem, so to speak, that held power over all the local assemblies. Only the apostles wielded power over the churches, that that temporary office within the authority structure of the church, and, and they only exercised that power in the realm of doctrine. Primarily, though, the churches were autonomous per Christ's design. You know what the word autonomous means? It means like... The authority authority for the church is within the local congregation. It's the autonomy of the local church. That was Christ's design. 
Each individual church had authority over style and cultural related issues. They collected money and offerings as God intended, but they were decisive within the congregation as to how that money was uh, used for Christ's ministry. They were not obligated to send it back to any sort of headquarters for uh, redistribution, right? That was not God's design for um, the church that Jesus founded. So regardless of the unique design of the church, there were men who sought to gain control over multiple churches and replicate the idea of a select priesthood. And, dare I say it, a papal authority, like the temple system. Paul spoke of this mystery of iniquity, already working in his letter to the churches in Thessalonica. Eventually, we do know that over the course of several generations, some men did succeed in wielding control over many of the churches. And they centralized that power in Rome. That was a dark time for the true church. As the Roman church became even more powerful and numerous than the local congregations who had held to the proper autonomous authority structure that God had set in place. I could uh, go on a little bit of a rabbit trail and mention that that within those local assemblies, although they were so different from each other per God's design, only, only similar or the same in doctrine and, and scripture and the central uh, aspect of Jesus Christ, as they insisted on re-baptizing people who had uh, come from the Roman structure, they were referred to derisively, and even with some animosity as rebaptizers. The word was Anabaptists. Eventually, this was shortened. Um, these small there, my rabbit trail's done. These small congregations, <laughs> but these small congregations, though, in this in this time period, were were under constant pressure and threat to join the greater body and submit to the Roman power. Now, this was actually later, just a couple centuries later. For the church in Corinth, during Paul's time, this threat of unauthorized power was just surfacing. And Paul addresses it here in our text. Let's read um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 12 through 18. Paul says, We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure. But according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, 
as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and and not to boast in other man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that... While we see it as addressing an issue that was prevalent in the early centuries of the church, we recognize therein, Lord, just the weaknesses of man. And we see therein dangers of temptation for ourselves. Help us, Lord, to make the application for your Holy Spirit, to make the application in our hearts that we might focus on the things that really matter. And God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would bring them to that point today and enlighten them and and convict them that they might accept Christ and join the family of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we're going to make some practical application of the teachings of the Apostle Paul. The, The context does lend us some background regarding the uh, the apostate church in the first century of Christianity. I, I think it's important to see the context, to see the actual problem with which Paul was dealing, to then even go a couple centuries on and see how that problem festered within the church and created an apostate assembly. I should say an apostate authority structure. But we don't have... We don't. We're not dealing with it at the same level as they dealt with it then, because it done happened, <laughs> right? Um. So the problems that Paul addresses here are are basic issues with which we all struggle on a daily basis. If you think about it, we may not see the formation of some apostate power structure in the church. But we realize that the root of such things is always personal sin. You ever wonder why there's so many religions in the world? It's because uh, people are sinful. Right? I mean, they can't all be right. And I'm not even making the particular point that... We're right and everyone else is wrong. I'm just saying there's truth and there's falsehood, right? And so, you know, just logically, they can't all be right, so there's most of them are wrong. So, how come there's so many false religions in the world? I'll tell you why. Because men are sinful. That's why. And so, when we kind of make that general application, we recognize that these types of crises within the church are always rooted in the sinful nature of man. And that sinful nature, is that's something that we still carry with us today. 
we have the same tendencies that led to that apostasy then, and we struggle against the same temptations as the men of the first century. Sometimes those temptations are well disguised, and they're difficult to recognize even as sinful. I dare say a lot of the people that were involved in that early apostasy within the church that resulted in, uh, in an apostate authority structure altogether, um, they were just deceived. They thought, well, this has got to be the way it's supposed to be. It always has been this way, and, and uh, this, is, this has got to be right. So many, even within the history of Christianity, have carried the cross while they did terrible things. Where does this come from? Well, what it comes from is the sinful nature of man. And, and we, we have within us the same weaknesses and the same temptations and the same tendencies. And while it may not flesh itself out in your life as carrying a cross in one hand, a sword in the other, <laughs> um, it does flesh itself out in other ways that are detrimental to the church that Jesus founded. Satan may not get uh, something like the Crusades again. But he'll take what he can get. He'll attack each individual congregation. And he'll do it by preying on the same weaknesses and the same temptations that he did then. And if he can destroy the effectiveness of the church that Jesus founded by the same means, of course he'll do that. So a lot of times these things, they don't even seem like sin to us. They are just uh, priority and value differences. Hey, Pete. It is good to see you. Um, sorry. <laughs> just hadn't seen you in a while, so. Um, these are easy to develop while we live in a world that's skewed like ours is. We tend to forget what matters. And our, and our value system and our priorities gets all, get off track. I struggled with a title for the sermon this morning, so forgive me if, I, if, if, uh, if it misses the mark on occasion. <laughs> However, it does convey a theme that I see in the text. I decided to go with things that matter. Things that matter. Because so much of the problems that creep up within our lives, in our families, and even within our local church come from us not recognizing the things that matter. Valuing things that are worthless and not recognizing the value of things that are priceless. And so I've titled the sermon today, Things That Matter, and I think you'll at least see the theme as we go through our text. Let's look at our text from this perspective and see what we can learn from it this morning. Let's first um, look at just the first part of verse 12, okay? We've got 20 minutes, no problem. I didn't have a note here that said pause for laughter, but... I just, <laughs> Um, 
So, <laughs> the first part of verse 12, we see Paul's de- determined to avoid something. Look, look at this. He says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number. In other words, we are not joining this team. Or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. Look at how Paul is determined not to be like a certain group of people. He even says he doesn't want to compare himself with them. This number of people are characterized by one thing. They are characterized by self-commendation. They are characterized by self-commendation. What that means is they commend themselves. The word commend means to formally or officially praise. Let me give you our very first clear and powerful truth. Self-commendation doesn't matter. Okay? Self-commendation doesn't matter. This is a concept with which we're all familiar, and that's because we see it constantly in people around us. And because we tend, at least on occasion, to do it ourselves. Job felt this, uh, felt his three supposed friends were commending themselves more than they were trying to help him and comfort him. He responded to Zophar's um, uh, diatribe, and, and, he, and Job responds in chapter 12, and, and, and not without some sarcasm. I, that's one of the things I like about Job. He's, he's a smart aleck. And, and he says, and Job answered and said, Oh, no doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. <laughs> but I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? You notice here how Job felt Zophar was tooting his own horn so much that it seemed he was trying to prove Job to be inferior to him. That's how Job felt when Zophar was done talking. Is that Zophar was saying that that Job was inferior to him. This is key in recognizing self-commendation. How it makes people around us feel inferior. We must focus on building up people. Even in rebuke, there must be an attitude of helpfulness rather than simply pointing out how good we are so that another person might aspire to reach our level of spiritual achievement. Perhaps... Perhaps, perhaps you are as wonderful as you think. But to spend your own time and energy commending yourself is wrong. The Old Testament book of wisdom has much to say about this. Here's just one example. Proverbs 27 and verse 2 says, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. It is unseemly. To commend ourselves. Why are we so afraid that our exploits and our attributes will go unnoticed by other men? 
Why are we so afraid that people aren't going to notice how awesome we are? I recall my father addressing this in my life as a teenager. Back, you know, before I was perfected a couple of years later. He would say, Josh, don't toot your own horn. Let someone else praise you. And he would quote that verse, Proverbs 27, 2, to me constantly. So much so that I don't even have to read it. I have that one memorized. And not because I did it on purpose. It has just been quoted to me so many times. I remember responding playfully as the advice had been given in the same spirit. But Dad, there's no one else seems to be interested in doing it. The horn's getting rusty and getting filled with cobwebs. <laughs> Another thing he would say, and I, and I kid around and say it myself now, he says, Josh, I'd pet you on the back, but your hand's in the way. <laughs> there was good wisdom in my dad's advice back then. And we do well to follow it. A little self-commendation may seem harmless enough. But when it becomes our habit to lift up ourselves, it exposes a root of more serious sin. Have you ever even thought of why we do it? Why do we lift ourselves up? Why do we commend ourselves? Why do we have that urge to tell people how good we are? Perhaps we think that God is not going to appropriately lift us up. Remember, that's his job, not ours. (laughs) And we're just afraid he's not going to do it in due time. Perhaps we don't trust him to do his job. Perhaps uh, we have some deeper problems that we're at least unconsciously trying to hide within ourselves. So we'll just constantly tell people how good we are in other areas. That way, we get some affirmation back, because that's usually the response you get. And, by the way, everyone's just being polite. They think you're um, a, a little full of yourself when you, when you say but But everyone's just is polite, and they give you a little affirmation, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, you sure are. And, and, and if they have enough self-control not to roll their eyes on the outward appearance, they're doing it on the inside, all right? But... Um, that's not in my notes. I was just surmising that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we have this tendency to try to glaze over the problems that we really have. Perhaps we're a little too concerned with immediate re, uh, rewards instead of eternal crowns. We think, man, if people don't recognize what I do and, and what I've accomplished, I, it, it's just going to go unnoticed. Well, if if you have to choose between um, immediate rewards here or eternal crowns there, can I give you just a little bit of um, what may seem as un-American advice? Try to delay your gratification. <laughs> All right? Perhaps we truly think ourselves to have reached the pinnacle of spiritual development and believe our own Self-commendation is helpful to others. 
to this, Paul answers in his letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians 6.3 says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. The gist of it is this. That self-commendation doesn't matter. You can give yourself rewards all day long. You can spend your entire life trying to figure out how to boost your own ego. It doesn't matter. It actually accomplishes the opposite of our intention. And it does more harm to the cause of Christ than it does good. Trust God to lift you up at the appropriate time. You will only succeed in clouding your own mind and tainting others' perceptions of you through self-commendation. Self-commendation doesn't matter. There's another thing that doesn't matter. You can see it in the second part of verse 12. Self-comparison doesn't matter. You see that in verse 12? It says... um, But they, measuring themselves by themselves. In other words, they're using themselves as a measuring stick to measure themselves. Think about about that, right? And, And then it says in the last part of verse 12, it says, In comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise. So I call this self comparison, and it doesn't matter. This concept of self-comparison is exactly as it sounds. It needs little explanation or definition. We all tend to do it because we all live in this natural world and we're so quick to apply natural principles to spiritual things. Beloved, this does not work. It's inadvisable and unwise. Look at how the Apostle points this out. He says, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. It seems that there's two aspects of this. The one is measuring one's own self, using as a standard of measurement one's own self. And it's ludicrous to think that this produces a meaningful outcome. To fall short of the standard means that I've not met my own expectations which may have been too high or too low in the first place. If I'm measuring myself, obviously, I'm not exactly sure if I have the right judgment. So how do I know that I had the right judgment when I made some standard for myself that I'm not meeting or that I'm exceeding? Self-comparison doesn't matter. It's... You may justify your process by pointing out your conclusion. But, but, beloved, that's just silly. You may say, well, no, you don't understand. I, I, uh, I measure myself by myself and, and, uh, and I, I come up short and then I try to meet my own expectations. So you're justifying your measuring process by the outcome that you feel is a positive thing. But if, if, regardless of your conclusion, whether you figure yourself a star or a loser, it doesn't matter. 
If you come to the conclusion in your mind that you're an amazing gift of talent and spiritual depth after comparing yourself with yourself, know this. It doesn't matter. If after comparing yourself with yourself, you decide that you are completely worthless and inconsequential, know this. It doesn't matter. And by the way, an honest person is more likely to come to that second conclusion. Amen. And guess what? It still doesn't matter. Okay, the math is still bad. Your opinion about yourself when sourced from within yourself is fully and utterly useless and untrustworthy. This is so important for Christians to get. In a world that is constantly telling us that we need to pump ourselves up or that we need to challenge ourselves and, and try to, you know, live to meet our own standards as if there isn't a perfect standard out there. <laughs> Look now at the second aspect of this. It's, it's self-comparison. It seems that instead of just measuring themselves by themselves, they're branching out, getting more perspective, and comparing themselves among themselves. You understand the difference? One is me just kind of obsessing on myself and, and trying to decide whether I meet my own standards, which I have set, and either I far exceed them and feel really good about myself. They call that narcissism. Or I decide that I have come far short of my own standards. And I come away with this terrible low self-esteem and dive into depression. All based on measuring myself by myself. You never start with you never start with an absolute. It doesn't matter what your conclusion is on this. And so you say, okay, well obviously the problem is I have not looked outside myself. Well, hey, very good. You have begun to recognize the issue, but but the problem is a lot of times we say, well, so I'll compare myself with somebody else. And I will either be happy that I am better than they are, or I will feel terrible because I'm not as good as they are. Beloved, you have stepped out of the frying pan. But your arrival into the fire is no safer than where you were. Your understanding of those around you is limited. You understand that? That was the wrong way to word that question. <laughs> but, but that's the truth. Your understanding of people around you is limited. So you're using a, essentially a measuring tape with half the numbers rubbed off because you cannot see the reality about everyone around you. You get that? When you compare yourself with somebody else, you're using a measuring tape with half the numbers rubbed off. And the rest of them are all scrambled around. Because you don't have perfect perception of other people. 
You don't have you don't even have perfect perception of yourself, but you don't have even that of other people. All you have is this teeny little view. So it's once again it's a bad comparison. It doesn't matter what your conclusion is when you compare yourself with other people. You can count on it being wrong. Conscious comparison with people around you is destined for failure. Let's face it. You've already arrived at a conclusion about yourself. Just be honest. And you're merely trying to reinforce it by pointing out selective things in people around you. I mean, isn't that the truth? That's, that's what comparison with others is all about. Jesus addressed this issue directly as recorded by Luke in his gospel in Luke 18.9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood up and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. (coughs) Self-comparison doesn't matter. Um, Looking at the time, I should have uh, titled this Things That Don't Matter. (laughs) There's no way we're going to get through the things that matter. Maybe we'll do that next week. Um, here the apostle speaks of uh, the the next one is self-promotion self-promotion doesn't matter verse 13 here the apostle speaks of authority if you look at verse 13 he says but we will not boast ourselves of things without our measure but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us a measure to reach even unto you here the apostle speaks of authority I chose the words self-promotion, not in the same sense that we normally use them, but in the concept of authority. Paul speaks here of the rule which God had distributed to him. The authority, if you will. He's speaking of the authority that God had given him over those in Corinth. And he's saying that it's not authority that he'd given himself, it's authority that God had given him. He's determined to not give himself a position that God did not grant him. We must all strive for this in our own lives. Because self-promotion is self-deceiving. And under the worst condition, it deceives others also. To claim some level of authority over another when you actually have no authority over another is usurping God's authority, because all authority is God's authority. You understand that? All rightfully held authority is God's authority over which somebody is a steward. So to claim that you have authority over someone when God didn't give it to you, is to snatch that label of authority from God's filing cabinet and slap it on yourself and... 
God says, hey, I didn't give you that. (laughs) We can only be promoted to a place of authority by someone who actually has authority. Self-promotion is meaningless. Just because I add a few bars to my shoulder doesn't make me a general. It makes me a counterfeit. So Paul addresses this issue. Let's go ahead. We've spent 20 minutes talking about things that don't matter. And we're going to spend about five minutes talking about things that matter. All right, so listen much more closely because now we're talking about stuff that matters. If you look... Save it, is what you're saying? The first thing we see in verses 14 through 16 is that gospel preaching matters. The preaching of the gospel, I mean, if if you look at verses 14 through 16, it says, For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reached out, uh, as we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of, of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. I want to, I at the very least, park on one thing that does matter and I'm going to take my wife's advice we're going to come back we're going to another sermon all together might be short who knows <laughs> of things that matter okay um, but I, I, I do want to at least focus on this because Paul makes he, he spends three verses to point this out that the gospel does matter and and in the context of his argument, the one defense that he has is that he has preached the gospel to them. And that is what led to him having any valid claim whatsoever in any aspect. As a child of God, as a, as a member of God's church, Understand this. God has saved us so that we might deliver the gospel to a lost and dying world. We understand that everything is for the glory of God. It is God's primary purpose throughout all of history, even before time. But listen. The gospel is the means by which God is glorified in this age. And for us to put a cap on it, to not make it our life's passion, is to hold to a different standard of values than God. It's to say, God, I understand the gospel means a lot to you, but it doesn't matter to me. Beloved, the gospel matters. We'll go into further explanation. Paul certainly does in those three verses as to why the gospel matters and should matter to us. As we seek to sacrifice our uh, value system 
and embraced his. We're going to see this is very early on in, our, in re-educating ourselves. Is realizing how much the gospel matters. The, the fact is, the gospel matters not just to those children of God and members of God's church. The gospel matters to people that don't know Christ. Because the gospel is the only way someone will ever repair the relationship that they have with God. You've got to recognize God is perfect. His standard of holiness is absolute perfection. Every single man, woman, and child on this earth has missed the mark in this regard. And so the relationship must be repaired. And the gospel is the balm that God himself has provided to repair his relationship with you. You know what the gospel consists of? The person of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. It's all that. It's recognizing that Jesus Christ is the only way through whom I will have a relationship with God. Because I'm not good enough and he's provided righteousness for me to wear. My sacrifice, uh, no matter what I do in all my life, will never be enough to atone for my sins. My payment is already tainted. But the sacrifice that he made for us, the payment he made on the cross, that's the essence of the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross is illustration of the, of the great sacrifice that was necessary. The fact that Jesus rose again from the grave is proof that his sacrifice was, uh, was efficient. Sufficient for the payment of our sins. And if perhaps in your life you have put things that don't matter on the table in, a, in an attempt to repair your relationship with God. If perhaps you've put your membership in the church or your, your religious activity or your good works on the table and thought that perhaps this might, to, to some extent, repair your relationship with God, understand this, none of that matters. Sweep it all off the table. There's only one thing that matters. It's, it's the righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Embrace what matters. Because it matters to God. It's the only payment he'll take for your sins. If you've never done that, if you've never embraced Jesus Christ as your only Savior, trusting only in him and the sacrifice that he made on the cross for your sins, you can do that today. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. It's entitled, I Surrender All. Go ahead, stand, um, we'll sing that together. Look, if you'd like to know more about accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, accepting the one payment that matters to God for your sins, then why don't you come forward and sit in the front row? Well, and I'll show you from my Bible how you can receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, how you can be saved today, born into God's family, and begin to live a life that matters in eternity. We're going to sing that. First him all to Jesus, I surrender all to him, I freely give. All to Jesus.
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord.